in the old days, before social media, before the internet, if you wanted to say something to the world, you could write a letter to the paper. Mm. But now, now, if you think it, if you can fart it, you can put it to the world. Mm. <laughs> Which would be a, a wonderful slogan for a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Danny Wallace, and I wrote a book called F.U. Very Much. It's about rudeness, why we're rude, how we're rude, how we elect rude people and let them rule over us. And it's all thanks to the day I met an extraordinarily rude woman who failed to sell me a hot dog. Now, that book took me around the world where I talked to and met a world of rudeness nerds, people who've realised before anyone else just where rudeness might take us. It's been shown to spread silently, almost like a cold. You can catch rudeness. Even just witnessing it can mean that later on in your day, you're far more likely to see rudeness where none was intended and be rude yourself. So this podcast is an attempt to make people aware of rudeness's even darker side and what the effects of catching it might be. Now, you don't need to have read the book to get something from this series, though, I hope you do still read the book because there's a ton more stuff in there. But in this series, I'll show you how it threatens our health, our careers and even our lives. Because we're at a point where we celebrate rudeness. It's in the air. It pours out of your phone. It tumbles from the TV. It dominates the cultural conversation. And I think it threatens to overwhelm us all. Because, Mark Haynes, who joins me now, it feels like even just in everyday life, you get one nasty TV judge on a show and suddenly they can't commission any shows without having another nasty, rude TV judge. Go boil your head, you big stupid. <laughs> That's the sort of thing they say, isn't it? Isn't it just? Isn't it? I, it is funny. It is, it is funny. And it's, uh, you know, when I think about... The golden age of rudeness. Do you know what I think about? I think about American shock jocks in the 80s. Yes. And we didn't have that here. No. And in America, people like Howard Stern, they were legendarily rude. And they would have guests on and they'd sort of say, uh, you, you look terrible, you look awful. And then they'd talk about sex. And even now, I think only now, do we sort of have that, that sense of, of that happening in Britain. Back in the 80s, that seemed... So unimaginable mm. that you could just have a radio DJ who would berate people who would talk about sex and all that stuff. But it made America seem so exciting. The Jerky Boys, the another jerky one. The Jerky Boys, yeah. The comedy of rudeness. Yeah. We all loved it, but we knew that it was something that, that we had in small doses. Now, we have that everywhere. We have that on mainstream ITV shows where children sing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there's a through line there, though, isn't there? From Do you remember the first time you saw Jerry Springer? Yes. The excitement oh. of, of hearing about this thing. And at the time, you could only really get it on, on VHS somewhere. And it was like the best of Jerry Springer. The fact that you could buy a video yeah. with clips of a talk show just tells you how revolutionary rudeness was and it was something we'd just never seen in Britain before. Well yeah absolutely and I think that that is what has been happening recently with with what I certainly deem as this this rise of the new rudeness mm. because we always rebel against what's come before the 60s amazing rebellion against the kind of the staid 50s mm. and now we are at a point where we have all gone along 
obeying the rules, the unwritten rules of politeness. Mm. Certainly in broadcasting, there was, you know, a lot of um, uh, rules and regulations uh, just about that. You would get a ton of complaints if anyone even seemed rude. Do you remember they, they couldn't show Justify My Love, the video by Madonna? Yeah. And they, they put it out, I think, at five to nine on Channel 4. Yeah. And it was seen as being a key watershed moment where people said, you know what, we went far too far. Mm. We put that video out and Britain is not ready for this. And the answer is, when would they ever be ready? They will never be ready for this. Yeah. Now, something as innocuous as that, yeah. which was a, a the biggest pop star in the world, yeah. did a slightly risque video where she writhed a bit, compared to now where... Well, they'd have a clip now on Lorraine. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, and Lorraine would be doing her own tribute <laughs> yeah. to Children in Need. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it, it, is, it is astonishing. The Jerry Springer thing is fascinating because that doesn't just seem to have been a thing where we've gone, oh, we like that format and we'll have it. We've put that in everything. Yeah, we have. And we've taken it much further to the point where uh, something like Jeremy Kyle, it's not just a bunch of people being rude to each other at sort of nine in the morning. Mm. They are actively encouraged. They are wound up like someone winding up a dog. Yeah. And pushed out onto the stage and told, you will be great TV if you are aggressive, yep. rude and horrible. Yeah. And we, if you do watch a Jeremy Kyle, it's really disappointing if you see one that doesn't kick off. Mm-hmm. You sort of go, well, this episode didn't work. Didn't work? What, because because a man <laughs> didn't throw a chair yeah. at, at some neighbours? This is, you know, it, it, it is a, a sort of coarsening time. It is a coarsening time, and it seems to be a rebellion against what we were talking about because we now find it refreshing, right? Mm. That's the word that people use. That's why uh, you have awful columnists who write things that in any normal society would rightly be deemed sociopathic, yeah. and rather than being taken away, you give them a chat show on a minority TV channel and a radio show, and they understand that by being... Uh, rude and horrible and misogynistic and actively damaging to the cultural fabric, they're going to get more clicks Yeah, because they're telling it like it is. They're hashtag just saying, which is the title of today's podcast. Because there is this attitude now that that anyone can say anything to anyone about anything, whether or not they know anything about that subject whatsoever, they have to have an opinion. And not only have that opinion, but broadcast that opinion to as many people as possible. So obviously there's social media, but but going broader, we have these columnists who understand that their paycheck relies on the unpleasant things that they say. We have these reality TV show judges. Um, who are the ones you remember? You remember the nasty ones. And then obviously that, that spirals into the next thing. It's all about moments of confrontation of what they call honesty, right? And that seems to me to be one of the worst things that that we face right now. This idea that people are only being honest. Mm. Um, They say the, the rudest things possible, and then they say, I'm only being honest. But they're not only being honest. They're positing an opinion in the most unpleasant way. And because of their honesty, in inverted commas, we're all expected to stand back and applaud them for telling it like it is. And we can see how that has um, invaded our society, not just uh, the sort of the pop culture thing, but also politics as well. This seems to be a very damaging time. Yeah. And a, and a tipping point. If you, you can say anything, so long as you say, and I believe this, I believe yeah. this very much, I think all children should be suspended upside down. Now, <laughs> I'm a, I, look, look, I understand you're only being honest. I, I, I'm being frank here. Yeah. I'm speaking from the heart. Yeah. All children should be hung upside down uh, from their, by their feet. Yeah. Now, 
that's just an opinion. <laughs> but prefacing it by saying, look, I'm being honest here. Yeah. You're essentially saying it's an opinion that is right, mm-hmm. regardless and, of what follows. And I'm not allowed to argue with you no. and say that's a ludicrous idea to suspend children upside down because you're only being honest. Look, I'm only being honest, Dan. Yeah, and your opinion is worth the same as mine, except it's not. We're at a time where, where, where we think that everyone's opinion matters the same. Mm. They don't. No. Opinions based on fact are worth a million times more than an opinion uh, some fellow outside a pub says after three pints of Stella. Yeah, but this is this is the, the swing that we've done with, with rudeness. And rudeness has enabled politicians, for example, to say we're fed up of experts. Yeah, yeah exactly. Now, being fed up of experts is a perfect way of saying, look... Look, I, I, okay, fair enough. I didn't go to university to study physics, but I feel that the third particle law <laughs> couldn't be more wrong. Yeah. Now, that, that's just how I feel. And people will applaud that. It's all part of that coarsening of not listening. There's a, a funny shift that's happened where people no longer want to know what's true. They want to be right. Mm-hmm. And so there's no interest in, in saying, for example, with politicians who, who don't want to hear experts, they can see the information in front of them, but that has less power than the fact that they are saying, but I'm right. Yeah, Being wrong is the worst thing you can be in this society today because being wrong is giving. giving. It's, it's about taking a step back. It's about... Uh, uh, allowing someone else's opinion to hold the same validity as yours. And people hate that. They do. And rudeness is a strong position to take. Mm. Putting something rudely, um, whether on social media or whether like on the news, where we no longer seem to have journalists discussing facts, but we have instead commentators mm. bringing colour and opinion and anger and rudeness um, and have you, put-downs. Ha- have you met Katie Hopkins? Because Katie Hopkins <laughs> is one of the... I think she is, if you like, the figurehead yeah. of what we're talking about. Have, have you met Katie? Yourself? No, I was asking asked to um, uh, present a show at some point uh, on which she would deliver awful opinions and yep. I would have to laugh along and go, what's she like? <laughs> uh, I obviously said no. Yeah. And you know that having trouble um, finding people, A, when they come to me, <laughs> uh, and B, when the fee is uh, noticeably larger than, than sort of anything else. I, I was I was actually approached to be a writer. Wait, on the same thing? On the same show. Wow. They really had to scrape the barrel with this one. I know. I mean, it, it sounds appalling. She'd have been the best thing in it. Um, but there, there really is. is uh, that was one of the few jobs that I've actually said, do you know what? It's not for me. Absolutely. Part of it was I found it a bit frightening how much sort of security and secrecy was there. Huh. So they were very much, you can't tell anyone. <laughs> you can't tell anyone you've been offered the job. Yeah. I didn't it's take not the like, job, yeah. so I haven't but signed anything. But also, so. it's not like you tell anyone afterwards that you did it. <laughs> no, this is not, not going on my IMDb. But I have worked with her before. Oh. And I worked with her very, very early on in her career. And we were working on a talk radio station, and uh, it was uh, for the BBC. Uh-huh. So it, it isn't some kind of fringe thing. It's not an internet station run by Nazis. Um, <laughs> but she, uh, she she was a guest on a show that we did at the end of the year where we look back on the news stories. And she was delightful. She was really intelligent. She mm-hmm. was really funny. She was really, really creative. She was just a dude. I actually found her really magnetic. Mm-hmm. I thought she was she was delightful. I think she made a decision yeah. at some point that rudeness would very much get her noticed mm-hmm. and it would very much help her career. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having a persona to do it. The problem is it seemed to be a rudeness that she was unable to control. Absolutely. And the problem is, as you go month to month, you have to keep on ramping this up. Mm-hmm. And the more you ramp it up, the less control you really have, the less power over your own words. They begin to 
get too big and you don't notice. And I think that's really what happened with well, her. Yeah, because it's magnetic, like you say, that's the word you, you, you use. We are drawn to rudeness because rudeness is a form of power. Mm. So a lot of very rude people end up being quite powerful. Yeah. There was a study done even on a, a small scale um, by a university in the Netherlands who wanted to see whether people who could exert that rudeness with, with complete confidence would be treated differently. Mm. And so it was just a little experiment. They just had some guy walk into an office somewhere where there was a thing that said employee coffee only, right? <laughs> and everyone knew it was only for employees. And he just walked in and just started pouring himself loads of coffee. And no one said, <laughs> I'm so sorry, are you an employee? They all just thought, well, if he's acting that way, he must be allowed to. Mm. So very often when we see people like um, A. Hopkins um, yeah. being that rude, um, we are drawn to it because it's breaking the rules. But we also think, well, they must be allowed to. They they are so confident of their opinion that maybe I must question my own. Because a lot of that being polite is perceived as being a weakness. Yeah. So if you had someone going up against Katie Hopkins or someone like that on a panel show and they're being nice, you won't remember what they said. No. Because they're being reasonable and they're saying things that are right. You remember the rudeness. When she made that decision, if indeed she did make that decision, and if it did get out of control, it's because of the audience. Um, it's because of the people who remember those bits and inform her that the almost successful things are the, are the bits where you're acting you know, again, in a in a good society, mm. in an unacceptable way, and that takes us to, you know, reality TV, and the idea that um, you know, post Jerry Springer, when reality TV was re really kind of blossoming and blooming, people were were shown actively that the worse you behave, the bigger a star you're going to be, the, the, the more reward time you're going to get. Absolutely, yeah, and you you can you can see that with people like Simon Cowell. Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember for the life of me who the other judges were when that started. I couldn't yeah. tell you one of the judges on the BBC's version where they had the singing thing in that big house. Yeah. I, can't, I can't remember much about the show, <laughs> but I can tell you, I remember Nasty Nigel. Yeah, you remember Nasty Nigel. You Big remember Ri Richard Park, who was the nasty one on uh, Fame Academy. Yes, And yeah. again, it was always posited as, I'm being honest. I'm yeah. crushing your dreams, yep. but I'm being honest. Yeah. Look at Big Brother season one. Mm-hmm. Nasty Nick. Yeah. He was again, this seems like this seems like a it century was so tame ago as well. He, why was he nasty? Because he smuggled in a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the country was outraged. It, I, I imagine the last series of Big Brother, they, they were openly just hacking at each other with machetes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's changed so much. It really has. You you could almost say the the, the lifespan of Big Brother is the big seismic shift that we've had mm -hmm. as we've begun seeing worse and worse behaviour that's been normalised. In the 1960s, there was a guy called Gilbert Harding who was the panellist on a show called uh, What's My Line? Right, OK. Brought in from America, this uh, this show format, and it was a very, very gentle... You have to guess what people's jobs are. Exactly. What's my line of work? Exactly. It? So you have a live panel... You know, an actress, mm. an actor, and then Gilbert Harding in the middle. And then Mrs. Botherby would come in and do a mime of making a pot. <laughs> right. And they would very gently um, say, do you work with your hands? And everyone would applaud. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do you create ceramics? And that was the end of the show. <laughs> Gilbert Harding would sometimes do it a little bit drunk. He said he was an asthmatic and the weather had turned and so he needed a drink. That was his excuse. <laughs> and one night he said something like, to one contestant, let's let's say it was Mr. Smith, the postman from Bolton. Mm. He said, I'm tired of looking at you. <gasps> now, 
this was a national scandal. Really? The country went crazy. Uh-huh. How dare he say the rudest thing anyone's ever said <laughs> on British broadcasting? They, they couldn't believe it. He, he sort of regretted it. But I think it was the first time that a constructed character mm. was kind of created on, on television in Britain. And it set this bar because he became overnight one of the most famous men in the country. Right. Famously rude. But when people tuned into him every week, if he hadn't had a drink and he didn't say something rude, they were very disappointed. Right. So he had to maintain this level of rudeness in order to keep the, the ratings coming in. And it was something that I think he regretted later on in life. Mm. But I think something like 2,000 people came to his funeral. He was still like a, a beloved sort of oh, character I, I, I in British life. I thought you life. meant to like sort of, you know, d- demolish his gravestone. <laughs> no, to celebrate his life. Can you imagine 2,000 people turning up to Anne Robinson's funeral post-Weakest Link? No. Another person who constructed a very rude character and got global fame because of it. Because Didn't at she? that stage, it was still seen as a taboo. Nowadays, you have Gordon Ramsay saying he's going to insert winter vegetables in a, in a, in a paying customer's anus. That's, that's a genuine thing right. that happened on British TV. Is that, is that the format? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it shows you how much we've rebelled against what I, th- I would think made us great and set our reputation around the world, certainly the British sense of kind of politeness. And now we are ex- we're literally exporting our rudest people around the world, whether to go on Fox News yep. and Slate Britain or to launch another format and slate American teenagers. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's going to be a change? Do you think we're at a tipping point? I uh, I hope so. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I, but I really do think that this is a, a vital moment mm. in, in how we look at ourselves and what decision we decide to make. Yeah. Because if you look at things like Brexit or Trump, these are two decisions that were made in two separate countries which divided each country mm. right down the middle. Absolutely. To the point where if you met someone who voted a different way from you on some issue two years ago, you kind of know whether you're going to get into an argument with them. Yeah. Because it's so black and white. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 there is polarity now, isn't there? Yeah. And there's no sense of, well, you know, we're, we're all just doing what we think is best. No. There's only one thing that unites us, and I think it is the, the first sort of chink in maybe we are returning to something. And I think that's the Great British Bake Off. Oh, yeah. I really do. <laughs> going to save us. It's, it's so decent mm-hmm. and polite and friendly and fluffy. And bizarrely, everybody likes it in Britain. Yeah. Even if you're if you're pro Brexit, then it's a vision of the Britain that we can have. <laughs> yeah. If you're anti Brexit, it's a softer, kinder Britain that's still out there. That's very true. It it does seem to me that that seems to be the way forward is is to turn our backs on this rudeness. Yeah, it, and, and actually, that's the way to deal with it in real life, isn't it? It's a it's literally the decision we have to make. Mm. Civilization rests and falls on the civility and 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 the citizens. Yeah, and we can choose to be civil. And it's funny that you say as well, when people say, I'm just being honest, the best way that we can have a civil society is to continually lie. Yeah. Which is which is to say, no, that's fine. Yeah. Rather than say, what you have done there is disgraceful. Absolutely mm-hmm. awful. I've, I've got a horrible new thing I've started doing. And I think this is, again, a coarsening of, of how society is changing. I've begun challenging people very openly mm-hmm. if I see them being rude I do. to other people. Yeah. And I'm aware that that is not helping. Because I am constantly dressing people down in quite a rude way. So I see it a lot when I go to the supermarket. There's a phrase, and I forget who came up with it, but it's it's a famous phrase, which is, you can tell a lot about someone's character by mm-hmm. the way they treat people who can do nothing for them. Yeah. And you see that 
in supermarkets all the time. Of course. I was queuing in our little metro sort of express supermarket, so it's quite small and cramped. And there was a lady in front of me who she asked about uh, some bottles of, of gin that were at the back, and she had loads and loads of questions, and she kept saying, show me it. And the lady would bring it over and she'd look at it and go, no, what's the other one? And she didn't say thank you or please at any point. So when she finally paid, I stepped up and I said, can I just say, I thought you were really rude then. Mm -hmm. And she turned around and she said, you're rude. (laughs) And I was too much on the back foot. And I went, you're very mean. (laughs) And then what you're doing, of course, is you've gone up to a stranger and you've said, this is what you're like. And I think that. That was just my opinion. And so I'm aware that rudeness, by trying to negate it, has made me a rude man. But I don't think it did make you a particularly rude man. But what I'm fascinated by, what you just said, was... The fact that you did genuinely think this person was rude. Mm. And by pointing it out, they thought you were rude. Yeah. And it is, again, that perception. The Brexiteers think the Ramonas uh, are rude. The Ramonas don't like being called rude and think the, the Brexiteers are, are, are all uh, rude. Yeah. We're at a point where everyone is kind of at each other. Yes. And it's been fueled so much by uh, this attitude of, I'm going to say whatever's on my mind all the time. Yeah. They see diplomacy as uh, as a weakness. They would prefer politicians to just tell it like it is, even though diplomacy serves us so well. Well, it stops us having wars, doesn't yeah. it? It is. I think Churchill said it is. It's. I'm paraphrasing, but it's. Uh, it's the politest way to be rude to your enemy and still leave friends. Great, because you're putting something to them that entirely disagrees with what they're saying, but you know they'll still give you directions home. I, I have learnt from this, and I think next time I see someone being rude, I won't probably go and say something. I'll probably just. I'll do a spit. On their on their coat, <laughs> and they'll find it when they get home. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Danny. Yeah, that's fine. Um, political correctness is another thing that they rail against, it, mm. and again, it chimes into that thing of uh, it's a weakness because you're not being honest, you're not telling it like it is. Yeah. But political correctness, in its purest form, started off as and is a wonderful thing. It, it yeah. basically means don't punch down. Yes. Oh, entirely. It, it means that you don't. You don't shout chopsticks when you see a Chinese well, exactly. man in the street. I mean, yeah. uh, th- there is another way of saying political correctness, which is not being racist, yeah, not being sexist, yeah, not being disabledist or ableist. There are. I-, I love political correctness. I think the problem is, of course, is being politically correct. You tend to be the type of person who, if someone says political correctness is rubbish, you go, "Well, that's very interesting. Why do you think that?" Yeah. <laughs> and then they then they go, "Look at you. You're pathetic." But it's what we need to get back to: is yeah. asking questions rather than. Oh, you that's your opinion. Well, here's mine. And we're yeah. both being honest and both our opinions are worth the same, even though you're using facts and statistics. Yeah. I, I love political credits, Danny. I actually I mean it's worth saying I, I would I would happily have a, a tombstone that said on it he was politically correct. <laughs> the, 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 the sad thing is it's the name, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's um I I I I just oh, why would you not want to use words that when people hear them, they, they feel good about. Yeah. That they I mean, say, yeah. you know, that's, that's not mean. I think it's fundamental, though, of course. Can't say that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about uh, reality television mm. uh, earlier. There's a guy I want to get on the line, Mark, um, mm. who I, I think you're going to love. And he's got a really interesting, fascinating, I think, take uh, on how we got where we are and why he feels to blame. Great. <laughs> Now, this is something um, I only started looking into mm-hmm. just kind of recently. I wish when I'd been writing the book that that I'd investigated this more and, and thought about it more. But essentially it's this. On March the 7th, 1998, the 
television writers of Hollywood, they all put down their pens and they embarked upon their longest ever strike. Now, the Writers Guild strike was about studios wanting to cut repeat fees, which they said weren't high enough to be worth anything. Mm. Uh, Obviously, the writers went, it's something and, you know, we would like that. They had this very different point of view. And they wanted an increase, so much so that more than 9,000 of them decided that enough was enough and no new TV shows would be written. Oh, paradise. <laughs> but, you know, no sitcoms, no no, no dramas, not even no cartoons or mm-hmm. animations. The writers would just sit down and do nothing uh, and just watch some repeats, trying mm-hmm. to get those those fees a bit higher, Great. probably. So the networks, they, they needed to fill this airtime in some way. And putting on repeats um, may have been proving someone else's point, so they needed to do something else, and quickly and cheaply, and also without the need for any writers whatsoever. And that is how the reality TV revolution was born. And with it, this whole new raft of stars, big stars, bold stars, very obvious kind of stars. And the world began to forget, I think, about kind of nuanced, flawed characters, complicated characters, stories of redemption, people who might have their flaws, but ultimately, in the great tradition of sort of American TV, they would do the right thing and learn something. And no one was fulfilling those old writers' tropes anymore. So instead, we started to get, and then desire very quick entertainment fixes these loud and shouty stars and these screaming arguments and like like we said earlier the jerry springer thing of just water being flung over each other Mm. and people cheating on each other and screwing each other over and no one learning any lessons whatsoever (laughs) and all of it apparently in inverted commas real now Not long ago, I wrote this piece uh, for Time magazine on rudeness, and I got this brilliant email from a guy named um, Jonathan Siegel, and it it chimes with what we're Uh talking about. He's a 30-year veteran of editing American reality TV shows, and and he he said to me that he feels partly to blame for the way society is now. And he even, I hope jokingly, said that He's pretty sure he's going to go to hell Oof, okay. for his part in a cultural shift that sees kids growing up kind of admiring the wrong things and behaving in the wrong way. Mm. And, and he told me about the moment that he first realized it was happening. And it involved a wedding, Jonathan. Oh, no, that wasn't when I realized that I, I believe me, I was well aware of, of the potential damage of reality TV before that. But it actually what that made me realize was the future was now a cemented it it was that was it there's nothing we could do you could eradicate reality tv right there at that moment and it wouldn't have changed anything because these two girls sitting at a table at a wedding they're like 13 or 12 or 13 years old in party dresses and they are at each other. I mean, at each other, really. You know, nobody else was at the table. They were all out dancing, so they were left behind. And I was left behind at my table because I didn't feel like participating. So I'm listening to their conversation. And it's a knockdown, drag out fight about which one of them was more like Snooky. <laughs> from uh, Jersey Shore. Mm. And, and for anyone unfamiliar with, with Jersey Shore, I mean, um, this is a, a very volatile character, um, someone who is not afraid of a little bit of aggression, no. of uh, putting her case forward in the most forceful way possible, of insulting others. And in her in her real life, I mean, she's, she's you know, not someone who... Uh, 
who hasn't been arrested for the odd uh, indiscretion. No, she has. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, this was the aspiration. They were. This was what they were. Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up, Snooky? You know that that's them. And talk about that a little bit about about the that time in American television, um, what was going on, and what ultimately came from it. Well, there was a writers' strike, and uh, rather than kowtow to the writer's demands, the producer said, the hell with you. We're going to make TV without you. And that's how it started. Now, there were a lot of filmmakers and TV people who were on the writer's side and refused to uh, work in a situation where the writers were not being uh, used or, or, you know, their uh, agreement hadn't been ratified or anything. So they, mm-hmm. they found people who were neophytes, people who didn't really know much of anything and paid them a nickel and a dime, people who couldn't really, never shot anything before, never cut anything before, never wrote anything. And somehow this, this genre came to be at that time. It didn't start with casts like we know them today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started with uh, things like uh, uh, when disaster strikes. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, when, de- when disaster strikes or hidden camera, uh, these were people who went through some horrendous experience in their life. Could have been a hurricane, a tornado, but they happened to live through it and there's footage that supports it somehow. Mm -hmm. So they would interview these people, get all the footage and put it together. And it was basically uh, something that people who were drawn to seeing a train wreck Mm -hmm. would watch. Mm. And because, because they would show the most horrible part about it over and over and over again. I guess from from that moment, that was the, the time where people realized that we can make these programs cheaply and what we need are disasters. Right. Embarrassments, disasters. And what was the first one that you worked on when they started to have like a cast where they would look at some people and go, they'll make great TV? I think it was, I think it was Temptation Island. Mm. I'm pretty sure that was the first first one I did like that. And what's the concept of Temptation Island? Well, Temptation Island uh, basically puts six couples on an island and 24 male singles and 24 female singles. (laughs) And they split the island in half, uh, put the females on one side, the males on the other, the singles, and then split up the couples and put the females with the males and the males with the females. And the singles job is to break up the couples Mm. by seducing uh, one of them. And uh, hopefully when they got together for a bonfire chat and they saw a video of their significant other on the other side of the island having a a wonderful time with someone else that it would infuriate them and make them want to break up. Mm. So basically they were saying, this is a test 
of your love for each other. And as far as I was concerned, he's taking one of the only things that we can probably be sure of metaphysically in this world, and that's the concept of love, and they took a dump all over it. Mm. And it's your job as the editor to make that happen. Not necessarily to make it happen, but to find the places that most show where that could have happened. But that must have not sat very well with you because you, you, you're talking so beautifully about this, this one concept that we can rely on, and, and I agree with you. And, and yet you were having to do this job um, where I guess you were sort of being paid again well, to kind of undercut it, which must have not sat well with you. No, it didn't. It made me sick. I needed to take a shower when I came home. Or I would sit in front of the TV and just watch something mindless for a few hours just to, to let it drain from me. My wife at the time, she really, I, I think it, it really helped ruin my marriage because mm. I came home and I, I just couldn't talk. I couldn't, I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to sit and watch TV, mindless television to try to, to just chill out in some way and and was that because of what you were doing or because of kind of what was happening you know that 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 slight difference um well of, of both what you, really yeah. both i mean because i'm constantly saying what the hell am i doing why am i doing this I mean, and i was looking for other avenues things to do um and at the time there wasn't a lot going on like i said there was this writer's strike going on and um but uh there wasn't very much other opportunities for me at the time and the more of this reality stuff i did my agents told me you got to stop doing this stuff because i can't get you work because nobody wants to hire reality people and what were the production staff like were they were they always building towards conflict was that the most important thing about the show yeah, the the uh, on set production team. They would their job basically was to inflame every situation they possibly could. One of the overall things that would guarantee some results were to get them drunk, or at least to keep them drinking. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and that seems to be something that a lot of these shows do because obviously, what a viewer wants, especially when they're watching these reality shows. Is that sense of conflict? Is that uh, sense of um, people antagonizing one another? Obviously, as the editor, you're looking out for those moments of drama and uh, and conflict and um, those moments where people are really going at one another. Mm -hmm. But the weird thing is, that's not just Temptation Island. That's that's almost every reality show we can have. You could have a reality show where people learn the harpsichord and you would still want those moments of heightened drama and conflict and bad guys. And and so you had to look out for all those moments. Well, they weren't really that. The, the, when I say they, I'm talking about the networks were not really that discerning when it came to who was a bad guy. Mm. Um, they would be very happy if everybody was a bad guy. Mm. No, it's it is that thing of uh, these are sort of simplistic quick fixes. In the old days, every character had to have a, a narrative arc. There would be tales of redemption. Characters would kind of be flawed, but would have ultimately something that kind of rescues them. They would grow and learn. Yeah, right. And with reality TV, no one's interested in that. And this immediacy that you're talking about that they get 
is teaching the audience not to expect anything else. Mm -hmm. And then they go out in the world, they go out in the street, and they watch the SmackDown that they just saw with the Kardashians or something, and they're in a restaurant or a bar, and somebody sits down next to them, and it takes the seat that was belonging to their friend who was in the bathroom. And now they're going to look at that situation in a completely different way. That's absolutely it. It's being taught as a culture that the way to solve a situation is through conflict rather than any kind of sense of uh, normal resolution. Right. And that the immediacy of anger is something to be admired somehow, that that you can be a star if you are that angry person who kind of overreacts. And, and you must have seen through your work and through editing these people and then seeing them covered in the wider press, a lot of praise being heaped on these people, or if not praise, at least attention and riches. Attention, attention, definitely attention, yeah. I think it's part of a perfect storm. The beginning of the perfect storm was reality shows Mm -hmm. then plug into that the internet now if you if you go back and think to yourself okay the old adage of the pen is mightier than the sword which is something i totally totally agree with Mm -hmm. then the internet via social media has now become probably the mightiest pen that has ever existed Mm -hmm. Now, you need to have a permit to carry a gun. You need to be a certain age to vote. You need all these restrictions on people for various things in life, getting married, uh, paying taxes, whatever you do. But to sit on social media, there are no restrictions and there are no editors. And at least in the old days, before social media, before the Internet, if you wanted to say something to the world, you could write a letter to the paper. And there's a number of buffers that are going to view what you've said and check out the veracity of it and say, okay, I may totally disagree with this, but you know what? What the guy is saying, he has a point and he says it well or she says it well, and they print it. Mm-hmm. Or they put it on the news as an as a editorial. But now, now, If you think it, if you can fart it, you can put it to the world. You had said to me in your uh, in your email, uh, jokingly, I think that you felt you know you were going to go to hell for your part in. uh... No, I wasn't joking. You weren't joking. No, I was not joking. I really believe that. I really, I mean, I don't. That's I. I have this same view of religion as Bill Maher, actually, but probably if if I have any religion at all, it's that Bill Maher is my religion. (laughs) Watch him. Uh, He would probably cringe to hear me say that, but no, I do believe that whatever form of karmic retribution there is, I will be receiving it for my participation in that stuff. And is this, but is this um, a form of guilt about it? Yeah. Is this just a fact, as far as you're concerned? Or, but what do you specifically feel guilty about? I feel guilty about not walking away from it. I guess hmm. I should have walked away. What I did is I stayed with it, and I, all along the way, I always tried to raise the, or I should say, elevate the project I was working on 
And almost inevitably, anything I did that overtly, or even not overtly, even sometimes I try to sneak something in Mm -hmm. that was a little bit higher brow than the low brow level they were going for, just something for somebody with, with a brain that might get a chuckle out of or might see something in the network would say, get rid of that. I mean, verbatim, vice president of a network sitting in my editing room says, get rid of that. My audience is too stupid for that. Wow. This is a VP. Yeah. <laughs> a so, VP. Uh, and do you feel that having exposed yourself to so much, I mean, you know, there, there's so much to talk about here, but but just even just the rudeness um, of people to one another and the heightening of it and the celebrating of it, do you feel that exposing yourself to that has done you personal damage? Incalculable. <laughs> Absolutely incalculable. I used to be so interested in so many different things. I had, um, I was uh, a painter. I painted voluminous amounts of pictures. I was very much into photography. I was a musician. I grew up at being a musician. Uh, I was very much into uh, drama. I started, uh, I was in plays when I was in third grade for children's theater and just stayed with that all the way through college. And I found that after doing reality TV, my interest in all of those things just went away. And I think the reason it all went away, because all of those things was creating something for the world. The world was a place to celebrate. Let's create something for it. Let's put some more celebration into it, a painting, some photography, a piece of music, a meaningful play, something, get it out there because the world deserves it. I am not so sure anymore what the world deserves. So, so just this exposure has, 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 in your view, made you a much more cynical person? Not only cynical, sort of beaten down, just sort of like, what's the use? Well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a depressing reality um so to speak um but it's one that we we're forced to live with and um you know jonathan thank you so much for for sharing all that with us um and for for shining a light on it and um you know i hope it can be different yeah i kind of hope so too (laughs) thank you much danny hope to hear from you soon you will cheers bye Bye. Bye. so thanks hey mark to uh Mm, jonathan uh i just want to say one more thing which was that 20 years after that first strike in, in 2008, there was another strike. And I was spending some time uh, around then on the Warner Brothers set, which was like a ghost town. Right. There was like a film being made and there was like ER. And, mm. and, and that was all that was happening. And the strike was just in, in full force. And, and this is a sort of a slightly terrifying last word on this. Um, the strike was in part now about the story editors of reality shows not being allowed into the union. Uh-huh. Essentially, again, you know, the writers of these so-called sort of real shows, they would write the storylines, they would heighten the drama, encourage conflict, crucially. Mm. And the studios wanted a hold over them, but the writers just said no. So even though the threat of all the schedules being dominated again by reality TV, they said, we're going on strike. And that forced the hand of one studio in particular who revived a show that 
might not have made it back on air at all. Uh-huh. It was kind of, you know, a lot of people saying it's on its last legs. We'll, we'll put it away. Right. Strike was happening. What have we got? Oh, all right. Put that on again. And that show was The Apprentice Whoa. with Donald Trump. Um, unbelievable. So, you know, we can't blame the writers for wanting to be treated fairly, but I think we can blame ourselves for just lapping up those Big Macs when we should have been paying for steaks. Yeah, entirely. Hashtag just saying, Mark. Hashtag just saying. Are you going to do Big Brother this year? (laughs) Hey, if you liked this podcast, remember there's loads more in the book. F you very much. Uh, You can pre-order. The uh, paperback comes out May the 31st or download it. Um, My thanks to uh, Jonathan Siegel again uh, and to you, Mark Haynes. Yeah, do one more. (laughs) 